One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When Diplomacy Fails presents. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fell's remastered look at the War of 1812, which originally aired as one episode on the 16th of September, 2012. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fell's remastered episode 14, The War of 1812, part 1. So... History is full of wars, which subsequently get swept under the proverbial rug, and I can think of few others, in the 19th century at least, that fall under this category more than the War of 1812. I mean, it's even colloquially called the Forgotten War, so that should tell you all you need to know. It's named after a specific year, even though it went on for more than one year, and it's famous these days mostly for the British burning of Washington, even though there was of course more to it than that. The War of 1812 is both worthy of your time and a fascinating story to tell. In many ways it can be seen as the second War of Independence, since much of what was learned after the First War crops up here again. Britain was still the enemy, still the enslaving monarchy. Indeed George III, even though at this stage he wasn't really sure what was going on, had been a big part of the reason why the War of Independence burst out of the continent in the 1770s. This time, though, after having had some time to establish itself in world affairs, Americans managed to find some more complex reasons for initiating the war against London. Before we jump into it, though, a brief reminder about When Diplomacy Fails. 
You see, as you know, guys, and as you're probably sick of me telling you, When Diplomacy Fails is in the throes of a wonderful five-year birthday special, wherein you get two episodes every day for five weeks. All of this took a long time to organise, took a long time to prepare, and even though you're probably listening to this while I'm on my honeymoon right now, or perhaps back from it, yes, I'd be back from it by now, so that's sad, but at least I'm married in the future when you're listening to this. At the time when I made this, I was in fact not yet married, and had the bright idea to do a stupid amount of work leading up to the most important day of my life. Because of this, and because, at times, Anna was wondering whether she was making the right decision or not. That's not true. That's that's absolutely not true. But anyway, I would really appreciate it if you guys went to wdfpodcast.com and had a look around. Maybe you want a t-shirt, maybe you want a book, or maybe you want to become a patron of this podcast and support us for a certain amount every month. If you do so, you're bound to get some goods at least, and the higher up in tiers you go, the more goods you're bound to get. From $5 a month, you can have access to the exclusive patrons feed, which will bring you the current episode a week before everyone else gets it. So, that's nice. It'll also be free of ads, BeFit reminders, and please love me on Patreon, please. So, that's always nice as well. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, then go for it. Join up, become a patron, and your life will never be the same. As if you needed any more of an incentive to join up, there's a whole load of merchandise just waiting to be enjoyed. Pens, mugs, magnets, badges, books, t-shirts, more mugs, more badges, everything you could possibly want. It's all there, guys, and you can get it from exclusive Bismarck mugs to exclusive badges simply by becoming a patron of this podcast. If it sounds like something you'd like to do, then great. Everyone else, sorry to keep bothering you with all this stuff, but hey, gots to make a living, gots to make food, and gots to expand this podcast. When Diplomacy Fails is where history thrives, or at least I'd like to think so. So, by becoming a patron, you can ensure that that takes place. Okay, so let's find out what the reasons were for Britain and America going to war in 1812, as we take you not to 1812, but... 1783. Of all the enemies of public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded, because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. James Madison When we last left the United States of America in 1783, the war against Britain had been won and the colonial masters had been sent packing back home to wonder where it had all gone wrong, while Americans began to build upon what America was, who Americans were, and what their new state should look like. It was in many ways a divided society from the outset, as the so-called losers of the war, the British loyalists, were chastised for their choice of side in the war, and many left for greener pastures back home, or further north in British North America, or what would become Canada. The others that had been adversely affected were the Native American tribesmen, who had fought on one side or the other, but were completely ignored from the post-war proceedings between the British and Americans. Many tribes tried to move west, while accepting that they would likely bang into and upset whatever delicate balance already existed there. Americans, as they can now safely be referred to, saw no appeal in appeasing the Native tribes, and pushed them to abandon their lands as much as they dared. Already, some American statesmen were looking to the west with the barely veiled sense of inevitability, and with the idea that the lands in the great western expanses would soon hold the mass numbers of migrating American pioneers and settlers. 
France had been established as a reasonably stable ally, and Britain had been acknowledged as America's greatest threat for the remaining years that Europe was at peace. For Britain, having just fought and lost a depressing war across the Atlantic, the idea of fighting France once revolution broke out in 1789 couldn't have seemed more unappealing. It soon became obvious, though, that this would be no ordinary war with France, as it was now ideology that fueled her troops, not the desire for imperial glory alone. France was able to achieve numerous successes against its continental allies, despite its isolation, and eventually peace was signed with all except Britain. Britain used its great advantage, its navy, to continue the war and choke off France. While this was going on, a new figure made a name for himself by employing the most revolutionary of tactics, and achieving victory often against huge odds. Britain knew little about Napoleon Bonaparte in the late 18th century, but it soon became clear to most in Britain that it was he who held all the cards. Napoleon seemed incapable of bringing Britain to the bargaining table, though, as failed invasions of Egypt and subsequent threats of an invasion of Britain only reinforced the belief in Parliament that Napoleon must go. With the war dragging on and a new government acquiring a firm footing in Britain, Napoleon was able to use his newly seized power to steer France through a brief period of peace with Britain. After this peace of Amiens broke down, and of course this is all old news to us since we've listened to the eight-part redone, remastered special on the Napoleonic Wars, the wars of coalition resumed and Britain again turned its attentions to sending ever more combination of powers against the French and their allies, taking little notice of what the Americans were doing half a world away. The years following the War of Independence demonstrated the divisions that served to pull the newly emergent American state apart. The Federalist idea was to have a centralised United States government, while also giving each of the 13 states certain autonomous powers. It was hoped that this method of government would stabilise and pacify any potential problems or conflicts that would arise from the various spectrums of the former 13 colonies. As early as 1787, conflict had broken out as polar opposites across the American states aired their grievances and demonstrated that the American public was perhaps not as united in their ideals as its government wanted to believe. Numerous constitutional debates followed, and yes, I'm aware I'm skipping over this horrendously fast, as John Adams eventually felt secure enough in his government that he turned his Federalist Party towards other things, like foreign policy. In 1794, the Jay Treaty was signed between Britain and America, its full name being the Treaty of Amity, Commerce and Navigation between His Britannic Majesty and the United States of America. This treaty, as its lofty title suggests, was designed to establish a kind of common ground between the two nations, just as France had the attention of everyone in Europe. The decision to take a neutral stance was not going to receive approval in every theatre of American politics, and it didn't take long for the opposition party in America, in this case called the Jeffersonians, to rally support against the move. As the historian Paul Varg, in his book Foreign Policies of the Founding Fathers, writes, The Jay Treaty was a reasonable give-and-take compromise of the issues between the two countries. What rendered it so assailable was not the compromise spelled out between the two nations, but the fact that it was not a compromise between the two political parties at home. Embodying the views of the Federalists, the treaty repudiated the foreign policy of the opposing party. It was Britain, not France, who was seen as the threat to American ideals and values, and many who had fought against Britain a decade earlier 
recognised that the French revolutionary spirit and murderous vigour were the moves of a people abused by an absolute monarch, not that of an enemy of all things free and good. Furthermore, in their revolution, the French were seeking to emulate what the United States had once done, except they now faced concerned Europeans, not merely the armies of a single empire. Opposed to what Adams was doing with the Jay Treaty were the so-called Jeffersonians. The Jeffersonians considered Britain the centre of monarchy and the chief threat to the United States' republican values. They denounced John Jay, the author of the treaty, as a monarchist who betrayed American values. They organised many public protests against Jay and his treaty. One of their rallying cries said, Damn John Jay! Damn everyone that won't damn John Jay! Damn everyone that won't put lights in his window and sit up all night damning John Jay! Despite all the damning though, the Jay Treaty stuck and can be credited for providing a measure of peace and stability between the former enemies while Europe was being carved up by France and her allies. Indeed, it was with France and not Britain that the US engaged in a so-called quasi or unofficial naval war with in the final two years of the 18th century. The real change came in 1800 when the Federalist Party under John Adams was defeated by Jefferson's Republican Party. Immediately apparent was the change in the size of the American military, as we are provided with yet another example of where the Republican and Federalist parties came to blows, as Liz Sunburn in her book The War of 1812, a primary source history of America's Second War with Britain, explains when she wrote, Many Federalists were wealthy merchants and landowners. They believed in keeping the American economy strong. They also wanted to build up the country's army and navy. According to Federalists, the US needed a strong military just in case it had to defend themselves. The Republicans disagreed. They resented having to pay the taxes to finance a standing army. They argued that if the country was attacked, it could surely raise militias to defend itself instead. Thus, the increases in the US military, which had been placed on such a pedestal, were quietly phased out and cancelled in the years following the victory of the Republican Party. The policies of the United States at this time seemed completely at odds with Europe across the Atlantic, as France in 1800 was in the process of mobilising her forces for one last hurrah to wind down the first half of the wars against its state, as the French Revolutionary Wars became the Napoleonic Wars. A brief period of peace seemed to signify that the apparent European crisis was over, but closer inspection of the Peace of Amiens would have revealed its fragile nature. Indeed, once Britain violated the terms of the peace for various reasons, the war with France was back on in earnest, with Napoleon now more determined than ever to defeat Britain decisively and by invasion if necessary. What this meant was that the British government, now ruled once more by Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger, would have to work even harder to defeat Napoleon's France, which meant that Britain had to emphasise its advantages, namely in naval superiority, wherever possible. To do this, Britain planned on cutting France off from the world and its overseas trade empire. To do that, Britain had to double down on its efforts to stop French trade, just as Napoleon would seek to do to Britain. After selling Louisiana to the United States in 1803, Napoleon sought to improve relations with the United States at the expense of Britain. If Napoleon couldn't invade Britain, then he planned on cutting it off from its trade. While not exactly revolutionary in their strategies, Britain and France were now locked firmly in a struggle that would be decided on sea and with trade, just as much as on land and with arms. 
Onto this stage it was America, independent barely 20 years, that found itself thrust into a highly volatile situation. Could the Americans really stay neutral while Britain and France fought over its trade rights? Could she really appease both sides? The subsequent years will make it abundantly clear that she could not. Eighteen o five was an important year for the Napoleonic Wars. The Battle of Trafalgar had guaranteed Britain's superiority at sea, while Napoleon's victory at Austerlitz solidified his position as the Emperor of Europe's strongest power. America at this time was between a rock and a hard place, because Napoleon wanted to isolate Britain from its trade, and that included trade with America, while Britain wanted to cut off France from any commercial prospects it may have with America too. Britain went further though, because it not only required the Americans to halt all their trade with France, but they also enforced their right to search all shipping and confiscate anything on the ship that it didn't like the look of. Officially, this was a way to prevent any war materials, as they were called, ending up in the arms of the French. But the definition of war materials, or war contraband, or whatever they were called back then, varied greatly, often depending on who was captain of the British vessel, about to board said American ship. British captains took food rations, ammunition, arms, cotton, timber, scrap iron, the kitchen sink, and many other items which could be construed as useful in wartime. Make no mistake, it wasn't like everyone gathered around and said it was okay for... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Britain to go ahead and do this, Britain was doing it because it had the naval power to. And that may seem like a biased or oversimplified way of looking at the situation, but the tension arising between Britain and America around this time was very similar to the tension arising between Britain and the rest of the world, and any other time that France and Britain had been at war. The League of Armed Neutrality had been established because Europe was sick of Britain championing its right to search any vessel it came across and didn't like the look of. 
Napoleon was able to judge this bandwagon of ill will towards Britain and jumped on it readily. He tried to use it to his advantage. America was experiencing what everyone else had already seen, that Britain was using its great surplus and naval power to acquire the level of security that it felt it needed. It was immensely unpopular with Europeans and anyone else that it affected for obvious reasons, but Britain felt it was the only way that Napoleon could be defeated. Certainly Britain's navy was the thing that kept Napoleon awake at night, and if you remember, in the Napoleonic special I did, how desperate Napoleon was to band the navies of the world together in order to defeat Britain, then you'll understand better what's going on here. So trade was a key issue for Britain and France, but it runs deeper than that. Like I said, Britain went a lot further in its naval exercises mounted against America. Not only were the British boarding American ships to remove so-called contraband, they were also boarding them to take back sailors and individuals who they believed shouldn't be on the American ships. Oftentimes, the captured individuals were pressed into British service in a policy called impressment, and this policy really stands out as the critical difference between Britain and France, because impressment was a policy of boarding a ship, looking for British men and women who had deserted, taking them back into the British ship, kicking and screaming, and either punishing that individual on the spot or very often forcibly conscripting them into the Royal Navy. It was a really messy, ugly process, and in 1805 it was loathed in America for good reason. A British ship didn't even have to prove you were a British citizen in order to take you away. In fact, if you yourself couldn't prove that you were not British, however you were supposed to do that, then you were liable to be seized by the boarding sailors and just pressed into service. Obviously, that was the most extreme example, but still, it gives you an idea of exactly how forceful and antagonistic the British policies were towards the Americans. The problem lay in the nature of the American state and where it stood in the British law. If you were a British sailor, for example, and you decided to desert and join an American vessel that was passing by, you might be welcomed by the Americans that were on board, and you might even convince yourself that you had left your old British life behind you for a new start with the Americans. But as far as Britain was concerned, you were still British, and no amount of American papers stating otherwise could remove your original nationality or excuse the fact that you abandoned your duty. The luxury of selectively recognising the existence of America in certain legal treaties and using technicalities, like the references to British subjects as living in North America, being taken to mean all of North America than merely what we would call Canada, added to the confusion and frustration. It often applied to British citizens who long ago had emigrated to America, but still retained their accents, and that was often how they were picked out and then pressed into service, even if they hadn't lived in Britain for decades. The British had a very unique set of skills that made it a nightmare for runaway soldiers or sailors or servicemen to actually effectively disappear. If you really wanted to run away from the British authorities, they would hunt you down, they would find you when they would, well, not kill you, but press you back into service. It didn't matter what position those former British servicemen acquired for themselves on the American vessel, and it didn't matter how loudly the American diplomats or dignitaries protested. When Britain wanted someone or something on an American ship, they took it. And this de facto law became de jure law in 1807, once the Privy Council approved a new set of what were called Orders of Council. And these orders made it law that Britain was entitled to block French ports and the ports of French allies, as well as blockade, board or confiscate any shipping from any neutrals. In effect, this gave Britain a free hand, 
but made the enterprise no more lawful or justifiable than the laws of the Americans, or any other Europeans for that matter. The previous British actions and its current orders were violations of international law as far as America and the rest of the world was concerned, and it is almost certain that the order was largely aimed at American shipping, because, in actual fact, since 1802, American shipping had become far more important, growing by 30%, and by 1810 it would possess the largest neutral merchant fleet in the world, a hugely significant statistic when you think that, 30 years before that, the American state was barely independent. American statesmen and her pro-war politicians believed that Britain was becoming wary of the competition. Some even believed that the entire move was aimed at just really poking a stick at the Americans, simply because Britain could. But Britain wasn't just poking America for fun, though they were definitely pushing all the wrong buttons. Reginald Horsman, in his book, The Causes of the War of 1812, notes the opinion of the British policy in Britain itself when he wrote, A large section of influential British opinion, both in the government and in the country, thought that America presented a threat to British maritime supremacy. Of course, France loomed largest in the British psyche, to suggest that it was America and not Napoleonic France that drew the most attention from London is to go heavily against the grain. America was, for all intents and purposes, a sideshow. As far as British politicians were concerned, the policy towards America was a means to an end, and it wasn't their fault, or at least America shouldn't have gotten so badly offended. Saying that, though, it had almost certainly been naive to suggest that British lawmakers didn't enjoy seeing Americans squirm under the harsh new regulations. And similarly, you would have to bet that when Britain's self-professed naval entitlements were drawn up, the fact that America's commerce would be adversely affected was seen as an added bonus. America was competition, don't forget, even if they were at war or if they were at peace, but it was also putting British interests in danger so long as it could trade with France. But that doesn't mean that America loved France, though. The situation in 1807 wasn't so black and white. France under Napoleon had created laws and restrictions that were in many ways as severe with respect to American trade and with respect to who and what America was allowed to trade with or what they were allowed to do. America was certainly miffed at being told what to do by both countries, but because Britain was the only one with the naval strength to actually fulfil its regulations, it was Britain that America soon viewed with the most hostility. Thomas Jefferson, for one, was at pains to stress the unlawful nature of the new laws brought in by both Britain and France, when he said, We believe the practice of seizing what is called contraband of war is an abusive practice, not founded on natural right. The war between Britain and France cannot diminish the rights of the rest of the world remaining at peace. The doctrine that benefits warring nations is monstrous, and the rational doctrine is correct that the wrong which those nations wish to inflict upon each other must not infringe on the rights or inconvenience those that wish to remain at peace. Contraband is anything that may help each nation, or it is nothing. There can be no line between them. All trade is legal, or no trade is legal. War is not the most certain means of enforcing these rights, however. Those peacetime coercions, which are in the power of every nation, if undertaken in concert and at a time of peace, are more likely to produce the desired effect. But Jefferson was hopefully naive in this respect. Britain was fighting for its very survival, and if doing that meant defending other neutrals, then it would do so. And Jefferson should have recognised that the war against Napoleon was different to the wars that Britain had fought against France, or even America, before. There would be no more amistice for France, as long as Napoleon headed the state. 
Britain knew that nothing but total defeat and a removal of Napoleon would guarantee their security for the future, and to achieve this British statesman understood that Britain would have to sacrifice its popularity abroad. Jefferson's miscalculation is examined by the historian Eugene M. Waite in his book America and the War of 1812, when he wrote, The war clouds in Europe constantly affected the United States, leaving war seemingly a mere step away. Jefferson opposed interfering in European affairs and vainly hoped that this policy of passive neutrality would induce Britain and France to respect American shipping. Great Britain, with its naval power guaranteed by Trafalgar, continued to attack American shipping. Indeed, British attacks became more frequent and aggressive, as the perceived weakness in America was taken advantage of by the British. If the years after Amiens were troublesome for Britain and America, then 1807 was the year that the wheels really fell off the entire facade of friendship. Impressment came to a head at this time, with a number of high-profile examples of Britain throwing its weight around on the high seas. One example of this was when the USSS Chesapeake had been stopped by the British ship Leopard. It had been boarded, searched, and four so-called deserters had been taken away. The British believed they were within their rights in taking away the four sailors, though it would later emerge that three of the four men had been Americans by birth, and thus the British had no more right in taking them than they did in taking Jefferson himself. The calls for American action after this incident were deafening, as Diane Childress in her book The War of 1812 noted, Officers from the Leopard boarded the Chesapeake and seized four men they claimed were deserters from the Royal Navy. Three were native-born Americans. The United States angrily protested this infringement of its rights. The British later apologised. It was five years later, however, before two of the Americans were returned to the United States. The other American died in a US prison, and by then the tensions between America and Britain had erupted into war. British ships were often stationed in full view of the American shores, and ships leaving the American ports knew that they would have to pass through a British examination before they were allowed to enter or leave. To many Americans, this blatant disrespect of their sovereignty on the seas was too much to bear. There was a prevailing feeling in America at this time that Britain was treating America as a colony still, and granting it none of the usual dignitaries that other states in Europe enjoyed. British interference was visible to Americans not just on the seas but also on land. Don't forget that the Canadian territories were still held by the British, and depending on which historian you ask, they will tell you that this angered the Americans because A. The Americans wanted Canada for themselves, B. America was worried of what Britain planned to do with Canada, or C. A combination of both. Some British publications take for granted the fact that America wanted to conquer Canada and incorporate it into a wider American state while some American historians will tell you that Canada in no way appealed to America and that America's policy was purely a defensive one. As was the case with the Mexican-American War, I would be reluctant to say who is and who isn't right in this case. Obviously, the only way we can really know is by actually being there and seeing what drove both sides forward. Since we can't do that, at least not yet, unfortunately, the best we can do is speculate. So did America want war with Britain? Let's look at some of the realities of the early 19th century. When you think of America, you may think of the America we all know today, the one which went on to dominate the continent and faced no rivals. Again, cast your mind back to my previous episodes, episode 11 on the Mexican-American War, or even the War of Independence in episode 8, and you'll know that the situation in America was actually very different in 1807. 
At this point, the Europeans held their old empires in Latin America, since they still hadn't revolted against the Spanish at this stage, and this made their presence somewhat more intimidating to the burgeoning American Republic. You see, America was the sole new fish in the American pond, and the pond had long since been occupied by empires with larger teeth than its own. America still looked quite similar to the 13 colonies, which had broken away from Britain in the War of Independence, which is understandable since it happened really only a generation before. The historian Diana Childress describes the scene. In the early 1800s, the United States was a small but growing country. Since the revolution, the United States had expanded from 13 to 18 states. These new states included Vermont in 1791, Kentucky in 1792, Tennessee in 1796, Ohio in 1803, and what would become Louisiana in 1812. Almost 8 million people lived in the United States, mostly along the Atlantic coast and rivers. About 90% lived on farms and plantations. In the territories, the new forts, settlements, trading ports, and villages of Native Americans were scattered throughout vast stretches of wilderness and virgin forest. The United States was not a financial, social, or military powerhouse at this time. Its population, wealth, and military were all greatly superseded by Britons, so if a war was to break out between America and Britain, it was highly unlikely that America would have been victorious, or certainly in the kind of victory many American statesmen dreamed of, those of the so-called war hawks of the government. The reality was that America's minuscule naval fleet would be hopelessly outnumbered by Britons, and that this would leave her shores open to invasion. The invasion of Canada, which would surely be viable only if America itself was secure, was a direction many Americans were not fully confident they should go in. Despite their sabre-rattling, Jefferson knew very well America's true position on the world stage. He knew of its anemic naval power, of its threatened border areas, and how recent cuts in the military across the board had reduced its power to unprecedentedly low levels. David and Jean Heidler, in their book The War of 1812, because let's just get every historian on the case, describe the restraint that Jefferson had to exercise in this case when they wrote, The United States erupted into a unanimous scream for vengeance and vindication, and Jefferson could easily have obtained a congressional declaration of war. Yet the president's lone and lonely voice for peace was the one that counted. Economies enacted during Jefferson's first term had left the Navy weak, and the army weaker. Jefferson, necessarily seeking an alternative to war, devised a plan to take advantage of war-torn Europe's reliance on America for resources and food. While many championed a war with Britain as a chance to impress upon it just how much America had grown, Jefferson sought a more realistic approach. So long as he was in office, America would fight its wars economically by trade deals that excluded all who mistreated America's merchants. He devised a plan to demonstrate how serious the US stance towards Britain and France's hostile actions were as he halted all sea traffic to Europe in the form of the American Embargo Act. However, while his intentions were certainly sound and arguably noble, Jefferson seems to have exaggerated the importance of American trade to Britain in his mind, as the act had the opposite effect of its original purpose. While Britain sought viable alternatives to the American goods within their vast trade empire, American commerce slipped to an all-time low, and Jefferson's popularity plummeted as a result. Faced with such a desperate situation, and with Warhawks telling him that the time for talking was over, Jefferson's prospects for peace did not seem particularly good as the 1810s approached. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 